Good morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. I'm your host, Philip Coover. I'm a partner in Ice Miller's Real Estate Practice Group. And today we have a great guest. We have John Morgan, one of the co-founders and managing principals of Intera Realty. John, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Phil. Yeah, no, I'm excited um, that we, we finally get a chance to connect and, and get on this podcast. Why don't you start by just telling us a little bit little bit about Intera Realty. This is a Chicago-based um, real estate podcast, but we do have national, even international listeners uh, that, that would love to hear about uh, your operations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having us on. Um, you know, Intera Realty was founded by my partner, David Goss, and I in 2010. Prior to that, we came from another, what is now a competitor to our firm and have been working together since 2004. We're, you know, we're a down the fairway middle market uh, commercial real estate brokerage, primarily focused, I'd say, ninety percent on multifamily asset sales uh, for our clients. Um, you know, we do dabble in a fair number of, you know, ground up development sites that will sell for clients. Uh, also, some office and some retail, but again, heavily, heavily focused on the multifamily space in Chicagoland and the surrounding suburbs, and kind of that you know, one to 80 plus million dollar transactional size. So we've got 19 brokers in house um, that all kind of focus in different geographic markets. Yeah, no, thanks for that summary. And, you know, you'll see Intera's listings kind of all over Chicago. I saw you guys just drop the price on the um, Starbucks in Logan Square that I've frequented often in my life. And I was like, oh, I kind of like that property right yeah. there. You got a couple of multifamily right above the Starbucks. Um, yeah. but that's an interesting one because that's a, you know, that's one of those deals that, you know, in my tenure we've seen and we've sold more than once. So, you know, it's kind of nice where, you know, we are on, you know, this, the third or fourth sale candidly of some of these properties in these same markets. Yeah, no, that's really cool. Um, one question that I, I always like to ask founders of companies is just, you know, you were at a different shop before along with your partner and uh, you know, what made you guys want to make the move and start a new business? Why don't you start with that question? I got to answer follow up. No, it's, it's a great question. I'm sure it's not unlike a lot of stories out there. You know, from 2004 to 2008 really was kind of this run up of real estate values, especially in the multifamily space, similar to kind of where we're at right now, uh, cyclically. And, you know, I think what we saw is as we started to approach 2008, 2009, 2010, obviously you saw the tide shift quite a bit. And fortunately, my business partner, David Goss, and I's background was I was a former banker. He was a former real estate lawyer. And so as the market shifted, as the world started to become a stressed marketplace, we were really well positioned to go out and get this business. And so what I mean by that is, you know, he had relationships with law firms that were handling a lot of the foreclosure and workout relationships. And I had a lot of lending relationships where I could go and kind of get our way into these REO uh, workout uh, positions and find out what they had, what needed to be valued, what needed to be marked to market internally at these banks. And, you know, that led to us from 2008 through 2010 being probably the two most active, well, certainly at the firm we were at, the two most active brokers selling distressed debt, selling distressed REO. And a lot of that fell into the submarkets that David and I had originally focused on our brokerage careers from 2004 forward, which was the South and the West sides initially. 
and you know, I think us being in those marketplaces, understanding the real estate that was hit the hardest by the distress, um, we were able to get a lot of the assignments. And so leading into 2009, 2010, you know, we found that we were doing the large volume of business in our current firm. And so for me at that point, you know, I was in my late twenties, uh, David, you know, whether he wanted to or not, you know, I really thought this is the time if we're going to jump, we're going to go out and do our own thing. Let's do it now and capitalize on the relationships that we have, the business pipeline that we built and do it for ourselves. And so we did that in 2010, actually on my birthday and what was the former, uh, my former boss's birthday, uh, since we shared, you know, that was the day I resigned was on my birthday in October of 2010 to start in Terra. And from there, you know, it's never looked back. We've built a really good team of brokers. We focus very heavily on, you know, finding people, whether they have a real estate background, if they don't, you know, we focus on those that have a sales background that we can train and really teach our methods uh, of sales and investment sales and how to find new business. That was such a different time and era yeah. in the market. I mean, I was, I came out of law school in 07 and I was all excited to do real estate transactions and then there were none for five years. And so I, I litigated it, foreclosures, receivership work, evictions, and um, yeah, never, I mean, it is, how often do you talk to the younger uh, brokers at, at Intera and tell them about, about those days? Because it's so different when you're right, like the banks were controlling the market and, and had uh, databases and information about the properties that, um, you know, you just don't see today that there'd be like large amounts of distressed properties for sale and, and just it's very different. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's funny. We, every week we do kind of a sales download and a, a marketing update, right? And so a few weeks ago, as the rates started getting kind of, you know, wobbly and you started to see some fluctuations and you started to hear from buyers and sellers, there may be a disconnect over rates, you know, and there, it was volatile for a few weeks there. And, you know, we started talking about tides changing. Now, the reality of it is, it seems like the tenure has somewhat stabilized over the last few weeks. We've dipped back below three, you know, spreads while they've widened a bit. They haven't widened extraordinarily yet. And so, but, you know, we have those conversations with our brokers, which is, you know, look, as a broker, you make money in a good market and a bad market if you're a good broker. So it's all about how you research, you know, how you're tracking your sub markets, you know, knowing that an asset may become distressed first and being the first to that, um, to the plate really, to be able to get in front of that and have an opportunity, whether it's for the bank or whether it's for the client who may be facing some distress in terms of the ability to refinance, you know, right now you're starting to see more cash neutral refinances out there take place. But, you know, we haven't seen, fortunately, a slowdown in our transactional volume. And in fact, we're substantially ahead of where we closed out our year end already halfway through the year. Um, but we have these conversations about keeping our brokers focused on the real estate and tracking what's going on with it from a granular level down to, you know, what people's vacancies are, what their debt levels might look like, you know, where they're at in terms of a refinance, because we do feel right now there's a bit of a dislocation where Banks, you know, they're monitoring this closer than a lot of our clients are. And so, you know, what we're finding is the interest rate volatility is pushing more people to be a seller today 
than they would be in a market where the rates are very consistent and you know everybody's got a higher LTV and they're able to refinance and get cash out. We're finding it's actually pushing people into a sales mode right now, which for us is beneficial on the investment sales side. Um, you know, we're just tracking the market, you know, day by day. That's really all we can do right now. Yeah, no, totally. And it, it occurs to me, there were a lot of companies that started in 2010 or like 2000 or around that time that were focused on distressed work and receivership work and foreclosure work. Uh, but it seemed, but you all, you know, obviously you had that those transactions available to you at the time, but then you've pivoted as the market changed. And I'm sure if the market goes back, you could pivot easily as well. But it seems you've always struck me, John, as someone who really pays attention to everything from the macroeconomic level down to the granular level. And you just seem to you know, be a, a student of what's going on out there. And then you take that knowledge and apply it to your transactions. Is that something that you try to teach and uh, make part of your, your company's philosophy? We, we definitely do. We are overly data analytical um, in our approach. And so that goes from on the technology side, we spend an exorbitant amount of money on services, right? Like, so everything from skip tracing software, so we know how to get in contact with every single property owner out there that might not be easily reached to, you know, the, the co-stars and the, the other services that track property level data. Um, and what we found too now, you know, we've even gone back because as the volatility and in interest rates has appeared, you know, we're really trying to check where rates are on people's individual loans because, you know, once a loan's reported, it's public record. And so for us, we track data down to that level, you know, what their loan to values potentially are, you know, who might be precipitated by hikes and, you know, the, the rate kind of volatility out there right now. So we can appropriately try to target who our customer uh, or our sellers will be, but we do that on a, you know, like I said, almost a weekly basis where we're having a download with our team and, and really making sure that people are focused on the core markets. Yeah, it's awesome. I, I love the skip tracing software. It takes me back <laughs> to my, my yeah. eviction days when I had to track people down and use skip traces to, to get people served. But uh, yeah. that's another level of cold calling. And I think that's what truly differentiates us. It's easy to find the people who have their management phone number on the building, you know, because we start at that level, you know, where we're still teaching our guys the old school way of doing it, which is, you know, when you choose a submarket, get out there, walk the market, know the buildings. So that way, when you're driving down a street, you literally can look at a building and know who the owner is. Um, and, you know, those that you can't identify from that easy process, we really take it to a next level to make sure that there's no property owner that we're not aware of and don't have the ability to get in contact with. Because you never know when somebody's a buyer or a seller. You know, I always say this business is heavily driven by luck and timing. Um, oftentimes, luck wins out. So it's just a volume game where as long as you're in constant communications and you literally are reaching out to keep your customer base and our clients apprised of what's going on transactionally in the marketplace, you know, it doesn't mean that they're paying that close of attention. They're operating their property. If they're not aware of a sale that's happened on the street that maybe you were involved in and you tell them about that and they're like, wow, my property's worth that much today. Let me get a valuation of it. So for us, we preach consistency and just really staying in front of our clients and keeping people up to date. We find ourselves winning more assignments, I feel like, because 
we provide the research that allows them to make a decision. And that's really important for our customers. You a baseball fan, John? A little bit. Yeah. It's just, it's almost like money ball. You know, you're like, do the fundamentals, practice everything. Do, you know, you're not going to hit 550, but you're going to hit 300. You're going to get on base quite a bit. Yeah. Um, you know, do everything right and step up there and just play the numbers. Very much. Um, you know, so let's talk about you, you guys are heavily into the multifamily space. I know you've got a few uh, large suburban projects too. Tell me about what's what's going on in Chicago multifamily and as well as the suburban markets and kind of what trends you're seeing in 2022. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, you know, certainly as a product of the pandemic, the suburbs became on fire, you know, similar to the single family housing market. I think it was the pandemic. Fortunately or unfortunately, it was probably the best thing that ever happened for that single family residential market in the suburbs where historically they didn't see a lot of growth. The suburban multifamily market saw tremendous growth from, you know, 21 forward. Um, you know, I think what you've seen is it really pushed back into the urban and the city uh, over the last 12 months. But, you know, the reality of it is there was a lot of suburban development over the last two years that kind of delivered. And subsequently, a lot of those developers were either merchant developers, never really intended to hold long term, saw really strong rent growth in the suburban market because at first, when restaurants weren't open, people said, I'd rather live out in the suburbs. There's less traffic. I work out there. Um, and they gravitated towards that. Um, and so you saw all of this delivery of supply get absorbed. And now subsequently, it's going to market and selling. And so there's been a lot of high profile sales. We completed a few over the last 12 months. We did a 100 unit sale in South Elgin, uh, which was a, a $24.5 million deal, and we sold a recently 162-unit uh, project in Winfield, uh, which sold for $44.25 million. So you're seeing a lot of those kind of like, which is really in our wheelhouse, this kind of 80 to 150-unit suburban apartment complex that has come to market in the last 12 to 18 months. And I think you'll continue to see some of that because what's now happening is kind of the inflection with inflation and return to restaurants and the world being open and urban core markets you're seeing vacancy that was you know abnormally high as a product of the pandemic now being compressed to virtually no vacancy no real concessions in the city and i think on average i was i was talking with somebody yesterday at a real estate awards dinner i mean i said if i had to guess i think you know inflationary Rental hikes and multifamily in the city is six to seven percent, and this is a guy who only does uh, residential leasing. He's like seven percent on the money. So you're seeing that kind of rental increases right now in urban properties, which is really hiking up values or at least leveling values with where interest rates have gone. So I think that's what's one of the things that's heavily helping us in the sales market right now is even with an interest rate increase and rates sitting kind of where they were in 2018, it's pretty unimpactful when you're seeing 7% rent growth to your overall value. And that's really what we're seeing as keeping sales forward. Um, you know, I think that at least with the 10 year treasury kind of staying sub three right now, it's been helpful to driving a lot of these transactions forward. Yeah. Do a lot of your investor clients like the multifamily space because of its ability to adjust with inflation? I mean, if you buy 
a retail property and you're stuck with some 10, 15, 20 year leases that are a 2% annual that doesn't look so good in the face of 9.1% uh, inflation yeah. reports. De definitely the case right now. And I think, you know, even industrial, which has been very, very hot for quite a while now, I think you're starting to see that cool off a little bit, but the reality of the residential leases, it's a 12 to 15 month lease in historical averages. So you're able to reset to market every 12 months on average. And, you know, that creates, and, and frankly, there's a hell of a lot more individual renters in the residential space than there are Amazons of the world that are going to lease a major, you know, industrial building. So it's much easier to find a replacement tenant and you're able to mark your, your income to market. So it's, that's one of the drivers I think right now out there, you know, when you look at the different food groups in terms of like risk reward, multifamily is, you know, historically one of the lowest risk out of the commercial asset classes. And it uh, keeps pace with inflation, obviously. <laughs> right, right. And so you were saying that when the pandemic first happened, people were moving out to the suburbs, but now you're seeing renters move back to the city. And I suspect that's what you said. It's for the restaurants. It's all about the food. It is. I mean, you know, we, we preached on this because, you know, as things you started seeing the vacancy rates climb and, you know, you started seeing all this suburban flight and the discussions around it. I firmly said two years ago, I'm like, there's going to be a shadow market that comes out and moves back into the city because of the entertainment value, the lifestyle value, the, the lack of commute for those that are working downtown. And as soon as people started being pulled back to work, and I think you're seeing more and more people, we're not even, you know, to a fraction of what is a full pack in the office. I, statistically, I don't know the exact, but if I had to guess, I'd say 60% of the traditional workforce is back working in office or at least full time in office. And as soon as you saw that, you had to think about that 21 year old who had graduated to 27 year old that decided, hey, there's nothing for me to do. I'm going to stay at home with my parents. I'm, what's the point of paying for an apartment when, you know, I can just stay and live for effectively free and eat for free at home at my parents' house that's in that early 20s age bucket. And as soon as the world opened and they wanted to go out and have fun and they had the ability to, they were out of their parents' house as fast as they could be. And they drove back downtown and were back in these apartments, which really helped rates strengthen. Yeah, that makes total sense. And you know what I was thinking about as I prepared for this, and I know you you know a lot about the 78 and uh, some of the other major projects. I, I assume you, you keep your ear to the ground on what's happening in Chicago because it affects your clients, your investors. But I was, I mean, when you think about the massive, all right, let me back it up a little bit. There's so much talk in the news about the challenges of living in Illinois and Chicago. I'm a huge believer in Chicago. I mean, I love the city. I was born and raised outside of it, so maybe I'm a homer. But when you look at, you know, Citadel's moving and a lot of people like to like to make talk about why are the companies moving out of Illinois, there is you Lincoln Yards, the 78, one central, and then the potentially the steel site, you know, the old U.S. steel site, like there's multiple multi, multi-billion dollar developments happening that have five, 10, 15 year horizons where 
people that are a lot smarter than me are making enormous bets on the city of Chicago, like enormous bets. Like any one of these developments would be uh, revolutionary for, for a major city, but there's at least three of them going on in the city. So, I mean, um, I've been wanting to have a, a champion of Chicago on the podcast for a while. So what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, going going to your commentary, I've always said, and I know it's a broker cliche, it's if you build it, they will come. I think the reality of it is you have to look at the U.S. as a whole and look at major markets and look at, like, where do companies want to be? There's no doubt Illinois has its challenges. Chicago has its challenges right now. Uh, but it's still a phenomenal city. You have major sports teams. You have phenomenal restaurants. You have really a tech scene that has been growing substantially in Chicagoland over the last 10-year run that I think rivals a lot of, you know, what was the prior West Coast tech centers. Um, you know, it's unfortunate to lose a group like Citadel. There's no doubt. I mean, it was very unfortunate to see them go and, you know, they had pushed and, tried to make things work here. Um, but you still have companies that are interested in being in a major market. And the level of people that come out of college in the Midwest and other areas that gravitate towards Chicago or being a major market creates a really strong employment base. And so I think that's one of the drivers that you're always going to see an influx of new companies, even if you have longstanding companies that have maybe grown tired of the Illinois political landscape that will come into the marketplace and that drives you know our marketplaces in terms of renters and growth you know everybody talks about the loss of population it's not really been the case it's a lot of like misguided statistical data that's out there ultimately but i do think it's really the quality of us and all the attractive things that chicago has i mean we have waterfront you know we have just such great restaurants such great entertainment you know it's a very unique city in that you know if you go to a denver while they have sub markets like we have true sub markets you know where there's all these little unique cultural hubs that exist in the city of chicago and that's a unique thing that not a lot of major markets can necessarily offer and so i think you're always going to see chicago as a very strong place where a lot of midwestern certainly midwestern graduates are going to want to gravitate towards and getting their first you know living experience post-college and that's going to be a driver for um, companies that will always be interested in staying here and coming here is the talent pool that that we're able to generate. Yeah, for sure. Uh, are you are any of your investors trying to buy up properties near Lincoln Yards or 78 or just sort of like planning for the long term? Or is the, the, the delivery on some of the, I mean, the Lincoln Yards is pretty close, but like the 78, the delivery is pretty far out. Yeah, there is. And I, and I do think, I mean, to that point, I think that, just look at Sterling Bay as an example. I mean, if you looked at the West Loop 10 years ago, or even I guess now I'm going to date myself 15 years ago, there was no buildings over four stories tall. You know, it was very low density. It was kind of a nightlife district, if you will, for the late night nightclubs and certainly had a bit of a food scene, but there was no real residential. There was certainly no real, what I would consider office submarket there. Rental rates for retail were at best in the 20s a foot. You know, speed forward to today, you have more cranes, more high rises, more apartment buildings, more class A office. You're starting to see people from the loop 
major law firms gravitate into the Fulton market submarket that I never ever thought would be over there. But you have Michelin award-winning chefs, you have a walkable destination, and you've started to see that growth and you've seen rental rates. I mean, you know, we've seen projects that are, you know, on average in the mid fours a foot on a residential uh, lease up right now. And that's probably on the lower end, certainly of some of the very high end developments that have gone over there, but it's just became this live, work, play environment. And I think that again, to the 78 or the, the um, Lincoln Yards development, I, I feel like those that are first to deliver, which right now Sterling Bay obviously seems first to deliver, they closed up the um, life science building, you know, they're doing all of the infrastructure, they've started all of the infrastructure work. That's going to become the new walking destination. And to me, it's a smart play for them to keep building it because while they're selling assets in a matured Fulton market, who better knows the data than the group that effectively developed majority of the Fulton market uh, office and retail landscape. They know their lease maturities. If people don't think that they're not thinking forward about you know, we know this major lease expires. We now have this new 70 acre development that has 20 plus acres of green walk space, which by the way, Fulton Market doesn't have and is going to be a qualitative uh, attracting value to businesses that want to have the ability to walk outside, go into a park. You don't have that stuff in Fulton Market. If their lease is expiring, they're gonna cut a deal to move over to the new class A walkable riverfront destination. Um, so I think you're gonna start to see some of that and that's just, duration of time you know as time passes they're a very smart organization they know what they're doing um, i think that they're going to capture a lot of turnover and lease roles from the fulton submarket and i think that's going to drive their success in early delivery even though it was delayed a bit certainly from what they originally projected i think it's going to be strong and we've seen a lot of people hunting around both the 78 hunting around um you know we sold a we sold a uh, high rise earlier this year. One of my brokers, Brad Feldman, sold a story of tower in South Loop for $82 million. You know, I mean, that's close enough to the 78 that, you know, that buyer, I don't think necessarily would have looked in that submarket, but knows what can happen to values because you saw it in Fulton Market. I mean, rent's going from 20 to a retail rent of 65 to 90 bucks a foot now. You know, I mean, that's substantial growth over a 10 year period. I love this take of, I have not heard anyone say, like the West Loop, Jack's listening here, Jack's in Indy, so he may not understand. The West Loop is just on fire, right? It's like the closest thing we have in terms of Chelsea and New York. or like just tons of restaurants, people outside all the time. But I like how John is the first person I've ever, I've ever, it's been on such an upswing for a decade. He's the first person I've ever heard kind of predict that it might shift out and shift towards Lincoln Yard. So when the West Loop is uh, no longer cool, kind of like the Lincoln Park used to be cool, you heard it here first. John, calling it, calling it at 510. Heard it here first. <laughs> um, so well, I, I know you're you're not a macroeconomist, but uh, you play one on television and you you do, as we discussed, you're a student of, of what's going on. So you know, when we talked a month ago, every day for, you know, 14 days straight or whatever, the stock market was falling three, five, eight hundred points. 
it's uh, it's not doing great. It has not rebounded. Oh, I should say we're recording this on July 14th. So if this comes out in August and the stock market is now at 8,000 and like it's just fallen off a cliff or has rebounded, um, just you know take note of what day we're, we're putting this out there. Um, but you know I think for me at least, it's less startling a month later than it was those weeks where every day was in the red. Um, and I, you've already answered this a little bit in terms of transaction volume, but um, you know, how has this market turbulence and the interest rate fluctuations and you know, how do you project out the next six, 12 months when you're sitting around with your partners to kind of talking about uh, the company and you know, how it'll affect the real estate market? Yeah, that's a great question, Phil. You know, we, again, going back to it, these weekly meetings that we do are imperative to making sure that we stay in line with the market. So, you know, it starts with us, you know, when we're doing our valuations, we can't do our client disservice by putting an arbitrary interest rate number that we think might happen. You know, we're getting live data points from active lenders in the marketplace, making sure that in our analysis, our underwriting that we're real-time data and that drives values, right? You know, there's certainly an impact to rates rising on cap rates and, you know, whether there's compression or whether it's on the rise. And so, you know, those are direct corollary effects to each other that, you know, we have to be cognizant of, we have to be in front of, we have to adjust our values. You know, there's always impetuses for somebody to want to sell. I think one of the interesting things to your point about the stock market right now is, the volatility has forced a lot of people to either take cash positions, in which case their cash is earning no money. And so we're starting to see a fair amount of remake. Like to me, the liquidity that's out there right now is still at all time highs, even with, you know, the recent 10, 20% drop in people's portfolios of equities, but they will put their money in cash. They want to find an alternate. And again, that's where multifamily provides one of the best investment opportunities out there because you can pace with inflation. And so we've seen a lot of people that are non-traditional multifamily investors and, and not just people that were heavy equities that maybe want to dabble in real estate because it's a great inflationary hedge. We've seen, you know, in the last year, I mean, we sold two transactions, new construction, 20 plus million dollar deal in the uptown submarket. It was an individual who's Primarily, or primarily the assets that they've held were West Coast, Class A retail, Costco's, major strip malls, trade out of that into apartments because of the shorter duration of the lease terms and the assumption of where rates were going and what inflation was going to do to their returns on their retail portfolio. We've seen, you know, frankly, we've seen a ton of historically known office operators that have major portfolios of, you know, class A, class B, class C office throughout Chicagoland that are now apartment buyers. And so I think, you know, we've been the recipient of a lot of dislocation and other asset classes that were impacted by the pandemic. They can't get out of the business. They want to still be in real estate. They've built a management platform. They've got to continue to grow that. You're not going to go do an office building where it is challenging in the loop to get a major office lease, although you're starting to see some positive trends in the office world. You know, they're going to go buy a large suburban complex. So we've seen that countless times over the last two years where it was like, 
somebody that we weren't necessarily calling on. Um, you know, a good example of that is, you know, you've had 601 West properties, you know, historically is doing million square foot office deals, did the post office redevelopment, which was wildly successful, owns the Aon. And, you know, the he's now bought two major suburban apartment transactions in the last 12 months. So you're seeing a lot of that where it's capital shifting over across asset classes that didn't really ever typically happen. Um, and, and a lot of liquidity where people are still putting a lot of money into real estate deals as limited partners because they're going to get a better return. They're going to get the depreciation uh, benefits that they wouldn't necessarily get in their portfolios. And that's, that's certainly driving a lot of the marketplace right now. Yeah. So I don't predict, and it sounds like you don't either, any significant slowdown, uh, you know, barring some sort of dramatic recession that we're not seeing. I mean, it seems like there's, to me that there's turbulence in the marketplace for sure and things are a little bit unpredictable but we haven't seen any any deal volume really transition i mean there's weird things happen right like uh, construction challenges and costs might might kill a development deal or um you know but but I'd say no, all of them are kind of individual challenges that might curveballs that are thrown at different projects, but I don't see any sort of major trend or shift that would, that would significantly decline because, you know, even if you have inflation, it's like you're saying that it's earning, the money is earning nothing in a cash position or, you know, very little if, if you have an interest rate in an account. So even if you're only getting, you know, five, seven percent return maybe on an investment in real estate, it's still better than the zero you're getting in the cash position. So I mean, we just and, and add the depreciation benefit to it, you know, in terms of your return. So, you know, I, I think to your point, this, you know, yes, there's some turbulence, but you know, if you look at job indicators, I mean there is people are dying to hire people right now. I mean it's it's hard to find people, which to me the job market is very strong right now. It's just getting some people back to work that aren't necessarily ready to come back to work, you know, which will continue to help. But you don't have the housing bubble that we had in 08. I mean, you, you saw it. People you knew or people everybody knew that were buying homes at certain value levels shouldn't have been buying them. And, you know, lenders were blindly making loans on the residential, which I think caused the first massive ripple in the residential front that then trickled into the commercial asset classes as the economy started to get harmed and hurt by that. You don't really see that today. I mean, you see residential home sales have been at peak highs, certainly in the suburban markets, but people are putting down real money. There was, you know, the financing was completely different. Banks are not going to do that. The, you know, the collateralization of a lot of these CMBS packet or CDO loans that were packaged up in the last go round just isn't happening the way it previously did. And so I agree. I think it's very asset by asset specific where trouble may exist. Um, certainly there's some hotels that still have occupancy challenges, but if you talk to a vet and we talk to a wide spectrum of owners, I mean, I've talked to several major, even hotel operators, even though that's not really our space and restaurant groups to kind of understand the underlying economics of what's going on in those markets. You know, I have talked to countless hotel operators that right now, and, and it'll tie to what I'll say next, 
you know, their 2019 EBITDA, which was record highs for them, they're eclipsing that in their 2022 trended year to date. So the traveler, not necessarily the business traveler, but the recreational traveler is, you know, they're at peak levels right now. I mean, I, I think it's evidenced by, and interestingly enough, I think, you know, with the US dollar being equal to the Euro at this point, they're suggesting that European travel is through the roof to the point where Heathrow was told, stop, stop, told all the major airlines to stop selling flights because they're over capacity of what they can handle in terms of travelers. You know, you've never seen that, you know, where a major global airport is trying to suggest stop selling flights, you know? So I think that shows that people are spending money in the world. This is more a pump the brakes moment put forth by the Fed to try to slow some of these price increases that are impacting development, construction costs, you know, that are definitely still and have been on the rise. But, you know, I think, I think this will help to kind of level that economy out. And it's, you know, what I perceive to be a soft landing if we do head towards a recession. Nothing like what we saw. Yeah, no, I love, I like to hear that. Um, and then, you know, I know you guys do a little bit of retail, but I've seen more and more reports and, and I know from personal interactions I've had that kind of retails rebounded kind of quietly. Um, it's had that, you know, really 10 to 14 year of decline. Everyone's going to buy things online, you know, and then the pandemic was all, it was, and now there's, there's the death now it's been, it's been going and it's just, it's dead now. Everyone's going to buy online, but it's actually been doing pretty well. Like you're getting a lot of, yeah. a lot of shorter term leases, a lot of new retailers taking on space, a lot of different things happening. It's not your traditional big boxes, but there's a lot of things happening out there. What do you see? Yeah, it's definitely not. I mean, and, you know, I mean, the one thing from, you know, being on the landlord side, I mean, you're certainly seeing higher TIs and leasing commissions out there to get these tenants in, but people are doing that because they know if they get them in and, you know, Fulton market's a perfect example of that. I mean, restaurant sales per foot are 1200 to 1500 a foot on average, which you think about a small format restaurant. I mean, that's a significant revenue stream for retailers and they're recognizing that people are spending money. You know, if you build something that's desired uh, by the area, sales are coming through. So, you know, I agree. I mean, I think that, and a lot of people too, I mean, they were locked down for so long that, you know, to go to the grocery store is not such a bad thing. You know, you get out and see and interact with people. And a lot of people just forgot about that. You know, you just got so accustomed to opening and closing your door real quick to make sure no, um, no, no biological warfare came in your, your apartment. You know, you, there's a social element to shopping that exists. It will always exist in my mind. You know, there's definitely been good changes that have come out of it and efficiencies, you know, in terms of delivery without a doubt, you know, I think so many restaurants pivoted to this, you know, delivery model, but, you know, now you're starting to see that the customer facing in their restaurants is limiting even what they can handle on the delivery takeout without putting it off site into a cloud kitchen. So, you know, that was a huge evolution for a lot of these restaurants where they're like, wow, there's almost two completely separate business models for us. And, you know, I think, while restaurants got the short end of the stick without a doubt as a retailer during the pandemic, you know, being forced to be told how to operate their business. I think now they're kind of the beneficiary of the new world and, you know, people wanting to be out and be seen and interact. Yeah, 
for sure, for sure. Guy, can you remember when we used to order our groceries and leave them outside for an extra couple hours just to make sure that the germs dissipated? Or... I, I, I certainly do. I recall my wife even wearing rubber gloves to bring in a bag of groceries one time, which I'm like, this is, you know, overkill at this oh, point. Yeah. But... Wiping it, <laughs> spraying and wiping everything down. Yeah. Um, well, John, it's just, it's very clear. You love, uh, what you do in the real estate market. Now that your, uh, Intera has grown, uh, you know, do you, do you still get to, to broker as much as you, you, you used to like to, or do you spend more time on the, the business operations? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I think the dynamic that David Goss and I have built, you know, we wear kind of very distinct roles. Uh, what we both like to do is mentor. And so we certainly spend a large volume of our time mentoring newer agents in our office, uh, assisting on deals, but we still do a substantial amount of brokerage just because we love doing it. So, you know, and there's certain assignments that we've had clients for 15 years now that they're like, you, I have to work on this deal and we want to work on it. So we still do a fair amount of brokerage, but you know, we certainly spend a lot of our time growing our sales force. I, I run primarily the sales force and help kind of drive sales and, you know, go on meetings as much as I can with newer agents. Um, but you know, we, we love to broker deals that'll never, you know, I'll never stop that. <laughs> Till I, till I retire, you know, it's, it's just a fun industry. You get to meet a lot of people. Um, no day is the same, no problems the same. You get to be cynical and determining, you know, which curveball is going to come at you. But I think the better you can predict and react to those things, and the more transactional volume you have, you continue to see new challenges and new ways to overcome them. So it's a, it's a great industry. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Well, I think that's a great way to end. Uh, on this episode, John, thanks so much for your time. Just to recap, market's going to be just fine. We're going to figure it out. Bet on Chicago long term, except the West Loop. The West Loop's dead. And, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's had its ride. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sell high if you bet low. Um, and, uh, you know, thanks very much for all your time and, and sharing all of this information and insight that you have. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity, Phil. It's a pleasure. This publication is intended for general information purposes only and does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. The listener should consult with legal counsel to determine how laws or decisions discussed herein apply to the listener's specific circumstances. 